take out your beach towel and bag your favorite sun lounger. Welcome to Tommy's and Jerry's, the podcast that does to German-British relations what Bruce Forsyth and Tess Daly did to ballroom dancing. Once a week, we're going to take a closer look at the things that have united and divided our two countries, from beer to Bismarck, and from British Nazi sympathizers to German tastes in BBC comedy. And, of course, the occasional war. I'm Katja Hoyer, a German historian living in Britain. And I'm Oliver Moody, a British journalist based in Berlin. This week we had meant to talk about the birth of socialism, but then we realised that there is a much more pressing and consequential subject in the present that demands our full attention. Snacks. Of course. Soon enough we will be hotly debating the respective merits of the jelly deal and the liver cheese sandwich. And why I seem to be able to buy any flavour of crisps I want in Germany as long as it's paprika. <laughs> What's wrong with that? There's, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just, um, you know, hegemony. It is the only flavour that you need. It is the king of crisps. Uh, you see, if I lived in a world where there was only salt and vinegar available, I think I'd be happy. <laughs> But paprika, it's a bit it's a bit East German. Is it East German, really? Yeah, the Because sort of, of the ascend- Hungarian twist? Well, no, just the ascendancy of something sort of very, you know, it's all right. You can live with it. You can, you can make a piece with it. <laughs> I'm always annoyed when British people tell me that German snacks are rubbish. I mean, jelly deal. <laughs> But that's like the Godwin store of snacks. You've gone straight for the most morally offensive snack in the British snack pantheon. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, mor- morally offensive, otherwise offensive. But anyway, <laughs> let's keep the snack debate to the next week. So while we draw up uh, the battle lines for next week's episode on culinary del- delicacies... Uh, a few of our listeners may have noticed that there's some sort of political kerfuffle going on in Germany. Yeah, on September the 26th, the country will go to the polls in its first general election after 16 years after, under the chancellorship of Angela Merkel. The result is unusually unpredictable, not least because even after the actual voting is out of the way, Merkel's eventual successor will only emerge following weeks of tortuous coalition talks. Yeah, well, given the way that the polls are swinging around, by the time this episode reaches you, the hip-hop party or the Marxist-Leninist party may well be on top. By the way, did you see there's an actual garden party in the running? Um, the, um, the, the saddest thing about it is that they're deadly serious. It's not satirical at all. It was founded to um, defend the rights of allotment holders in Magdeburg. That makes perfect sense to me. I mean, there's also the uh, Bürger in Wut, the angry citizens, uh, who are literally focused on Bremerhaven only, which uh, is in itself, I mean, that's local. Uh, but their point is basically that they are what, what it says on the tin. They're angry. And again, it's not a satirical thing. They're just angry, uh, far-right, sort of economic liberals. But that's their main point. They're angry and they, they want to be a party that's about being angry. Lovely. I mean, there's also, you know, speaking of satire, when, when I still lived in Germany, uh, a political party was formed, which is just called Die Party, which uh, was founded by a satirical magazine uh, called Titanic or Titanic um, in 2004. And it was quite funny at the time. I, I used to read the Titanic quite a lot because they, they used to be very funny. I don't know if they still are. I haven't read them in, in some time. But they um, founded a party entirely satirical. So it's, their main thing is to bring about the um, division of Germany again, rebuild the Berlin Wall. They have the Hintner Jugend as their uh, youth movement. <laughs> um, and they, one of the things that they were recently in the news for was, for instance, when in Germany is compulsory, I think it's the same in Britain, actually, for uh, public TV channels to show election spots. 
and they sold theirs on eBay <laughs> for 14,000 euros as well. So basically the 30 seconds that they would have got from German public TV went to some private company. So it was all a bit bizarre, really, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, I mean, I, th I actually think we should get the Departeis founder, Martin Zonneborn, on and do an episode on them because they, they, they did really well at the last European election. Um, they beat the Free Democrats in Berlin and they got two MEPs. And so now they've, they've actually had to draw up serious policies in the, in the European <laughs> Parliament and their two M MEPs have been um, schisming over how serious they should be or whether they should stick to their original satirical mandate. But um, I think we should talk about the, the, the real parties. You know, by the time that we're speaking now, the centre-left Social Democrats or um, the SPD, who recently were miles behind in the running, have now shot to the front of the pack, uh, opened up uh, their strongest lead in two decades and have really been a, a bit of a surprise comeback. Since from a British perspective, German politics sometimes threatens to dissolve into a soup of acronyms and blurry colours. I think we should have a swift refresher on the rival parties. So catch it, I'm going to put a timer on and I'm going to give you 90 seconds to take our listeners on a magical mystery tour of the German party landscape. Ooh, challenge accepted. Let's start with the union of CDU-CSU, which is Angela Merkel's camp. They are two parties, really. So there's the CDU, or the Christian Democrats, who are now headed by Armin Laschet, who has also been declared as their chancellor candidate. This means that should the party gain enough votes to lead the government following the election, he will be the chancellor. It's perhaps worth adding that the party leader does not have to necessarily be the chancellor candidate. The CDU always joins forces with the CSU, the Christian Social Union, uh, who are their sister party in Bavaria. And you can only vote for them if you live in Bavaria. In the other 15 states, you vote for the CDU and the parties then form a faction together in the Bundestag and effectively act as one. Or oh, that's the idea. On to the SPD. As mentioned before, they are centre-left social democratic party, currently the second largest party uh, in the Bundestag and by far the oldest. They were even formed before Germany was unified in the 19th century. They have a double leadership with uh, Saskia Esken and Norbert Walter-Borjans uh, leading the, the party, um, but they have chosen to nominate Olaf Scholz as their chancellor candidate. Next up, the Greens, a more popular and somewhat more centrist equivalent to the Greens in the UK. They have a double leadership structure as well, consisting at the moment of Robert Habeck and Annalena Baerbock, and the latter is their chancellor candidate. And then there's the FDP, which is a liberal party, but I should maybe add that they're economically liberal too, and therefore uh, quite different really from the UK equivalent. Um, and favour sort of less state intervention and more free-flowing capitalism, I suppose economically quite akin to the backbenchers and the Conservative Party. And then lastly, on the fringes of the political spectrum, we have the AFD or Alternative für Deutschland on the right and Die Linke or the left on, well, the left. Uh, and combined, they take up 709 seats in the German parliament. I hope that's clear to our listeners. I thought it was good. <laughs> well, it's always, a, people are always saying it's the alphabet soup of German politics, but hopefully that's made a little bit more sense. Oliver, what's this election really about? What are the actual differences between the three biggest parties? Well, if you analyse the main topic of the election in terms of airtime and media attention, I think it would be whether you need a BA if you want to study for an MA in international law at the London School of Economics. Um, the election campaign has involved an awful lot of dwelling on uh, trivial elements 
from interviews or the past lives of the candidates, especially Annalena Baerbock, the candidate from the Greens. Um, the more substantial and serious part of the debate has really been, I think, dominated by um, two issues. One is the environment and the other is economic policy. I don't know quite how much our listeners want to get into the weeds of the divergences between the party manifestos, but the sort of fundamental dividing lines in the election are, I would say, um, on the environment, the balance between whether you decarbonise by regulating what people can do, or whether you decarbonise by um, gingering up the market to innovate and create wonderful new carbon reducing technologies. And then um, on the economy, it's whether you uh, sort of put up taxes on the the rich and then um, open up the taps of public investment to restore Germany's infrastructure and again help with decarbonisation or whether you cut taxes and unleash the latent animal spirits of the German economy. I do wonder what the spirit animal of the German economy would be. (laughs) I don't know, a badger? It's quite angry and quite large. (laughs) (laughs) So that's what's been dominating the political agenda but Ketchup, what issues have they not been talking about but possibly should have been i don't know everything else really i mean like you just said i don't know how much our british listeners are into this i'm not sure the german public are all that much into these issues either i mean people care about the environment of course which is why all the political parties have jumped on board with it but the ins and outs of you know tax reforms and things like that i I think they pretty much go over the heads of most people um because what people do care about is things like affordability of state pensions, uh, foreign policy issues, what to do about China, um, you know, the relationship with with Russia, with the US. Um, Does the EU need reforming and to what extent? Um, Really, you know, issues that are important to younger people seem to be picked up very little because people just look at an aging society and cater to older people. And I also find it quite astonishing and have done for years how little people care about uh, just basic quality of life. I mean, 250,000 Germans leave the country every single year. That's a quarter of a million Germans. That's taken the, you know, people that have immigrated into Germany and have left again out of it. So this is Germans leaving Germany, mostly going to Austria and, and Switzerland and the UK and, and America because they imagine they will have a better quality of life there than they do in Germany. Germany was also the most most severely affected by um, the great resignation in the wake of COVID. 6% of the workforce have resigned in the wake of lockdowns. That's massive, much, much bigger than anywhere else in Europe. So they're, they're not really talking about these things. And I think the Green Party are missing a trick here, aren't they? If they'd picked up any of these issues, is, is that how they you think could have saved some of their their recent losses? Yeah, I mean, imagine feeling compelled to leave Germany for Britain. Yeah, I know. It's a terrible fate. <laughs> I came here for the for the weather, personally, to be honest. It's the warm climate that drew me. <laughs> you know, Berlin's wetter than London, but this is this is in danger of digressing. Um, on, on the Greens, so you could describe this election campaign as a drama in three acts. And the first and the shortest of the acts um, was the Green ascendancy. So if you think back to um, April, when the campaign first sort of rumbled into life, the Greens and the CDU-CSU both launched their chancellor candidates um, within a couple of days of each other, Armin Laschet and Annalena Baerbock. And um, voters took one look at them and thought, my goodness. Um, And there was this sudden burst of enthusiasm for Baerbock. And the Greens uh, pushed ahead of the 
centre-right in the polls. One poll had them seven points ahead and then the Greens just blew it. And I think some of this is just structural stuff that's not the Green Party's fault. Um, it's a bit of both. It's interesting when uh, my mum, who lives just outside of Berlin, she was one of those people that was really excited when the Green Party nominated Annalena Baerbock. And then she said, you know, this is this is brilliant. A youngish woman. She's only 40 years old. Um, you know, she's going to bring change, a new generation of politicians. And, and, you know, she was looking forward to it. And then she, she, she said to me every time I talked to her, she said, the more I see of her, the less... I like her and she couldn't quite put a finger on on why but she was saying in hindsight she would have rather they they'd nominated their other you know party leader Robert Herbert Herbert even um now I'm getting confused with the German alphabet of politics um but yeah so you know without being overly um critical of of what the greens actually want or don't want her main thing was just she she couldn't explain why but she got put off a little bit the more she saw her and I think that's representative of quite a few people as well yeah it's it's really interesting there that your mum couldn't quite put her finger on it because there was so much um positive press opinion about Baerbock as being almost a bit Merkel like in her sense of um focused and how well briefed and how well organized and hardworking she was and um since then there's been a lot of focus on whether she was the right candidate, whether it would have been better to go for somebody more charismatic, and then all these bits of her backstory that have kind of fallen apart. Um, but I don't think there's anything about Baerbock that makes her necessarily a terrible candidate. I just think that she's gone into a bit of a doom spiral. And there are a lot of people out there who are looking at her and thinking, oh, I, she's not impressive, but I can't say why. And I think that's the problem. I mean, it just feels to people like she's sort of nice and does all the right things and is is well briefed on the whole. Although she's also had some howlers, didn't she, in in some of her speeches, like when she claimed that um, effectively social democracy and the social welfare state in Germany was invented by the SPD when they had actually not been in power for two decades after the foundation of Germany, of West Germany in 1949. But other than that, she's normally well prepared and all that. But I think it's it's just that veneer of a professional politician almost that's putting people off a little bit. Possibly. I mean, you mentioned the unforced errors. I think the biggest of them all was a really fundamental strategic mistake on the part of the party which was um, they came out of the blocks again back in April at the start of the campaign. And the first thing they did, they put in the public's mind, was that they were going to scrap short haul flights and whack up the petrol prices. And this, this is Germany. I mean, it's not a country where the first retail policy that you want to stick on the country's most popular um, tabloid is um, making people pay more money at the petrol pump. And I think this really um, undid all the years of good work that Baerbock and Harbeck had put in to stop the Greens being seen as this finger-wagging Verbotspartei, um, you know, the party that wants to ban everything. But anyway, um, yeah, exactly. since then, uh, the Greens have faded away. The CDU-CSU came into the limelight and it hasn't been going so well for them lately. What happened? That was foreseeable, I think, totally. I mean, when you look at when they had to nominate their chancellor candidate, and we were saying earlier, it doesn't have to be the party leader. Um, They had various choices um, and they went knowingly for the least popular candidate, Armin Laschet. 
in the polls then, um, he, I think he at the time, uh, this was in, at, in early spring this year, um, when there was a debate around who they should nominate, uh, Armin Laschet then was, was polling around something like 17, 18, 19%. And people were saying, you know, what are you doing? Why are you nominating your least uh, popular politician? And I think there's a little bit of complacency there that that made them go for that i mean there's internal you know party political reasons i think the much more popular markus söder who's the leader of the csu in, in bavaria and also the bavarian minister president would have been the popular option and they knew that so he polled around about 40 percent. so a huge gap there between the two but when you think about the longevity of the chancellorship in germany there was a risk there to have a bavarian csu man as a chancellor for possibly eight, 12, 16 years, you know, power within that union of CSU and CDU would have shifted southward significantly. And the par- party just simply thought, you know what, we've been in power for 16 years. Before that, we've, we've had very long living chancellors. We're going to win this election. The SPD are at rock bottom. Um, the Greens were better, obviously higher polling than than they were at the last election in uh, 2017, but certainly not a, not a serious threat to them. At least that's what they thought. Um, and so they thought, you know what, we have it in the bag. It doesn't matter who we nominate. And I think that was the problem. Voters sensed that, and on top of that, you know, Laschet isn't it just isn't the most charismatic individual, is he? But Laschet recovered, right? And I don't I don't think we've mm. quite explained yet why he he stopped recovering and in fact went into a really um, sharp decline and dragged down his, his party with him. I mean, were there other factors at play? I mean, you could talk about the catastrophic flooding in his backyard in, in the Rhineland because um, he is the, um, uh, the the premier of North Rhine-Westphalia, which is effectively like a, a, a large European country that just happens to be in Germany. Um, and there were terrible, terrible floods that made the international front pages back in July. And his response catcher was was generally regarded as being as having been less than adequate or serious yeah i mean the i think it started right from the top when he didn't he wasn't the first on the scene and then when he finally appeared there was a very very unfortunate incident where the german president was giving a very serious and moving speech about how this had devastated people's lives and how houses and, and livelihoods were destroyed. And he stood like a naughty schoolboy with his with his schoolboy friends in the background uh, and laughed, not just chuckled, but outright laughed and, and pointed his finger at people. And, you, know, you had the sort of typical, you know, sort of male banter type scene in the background whilst, and, and on camera as well. And then this this appeared everywhere on the internet and, and kind of made its rounds. And, and people were just saying, you're only here for your campaign. You don't actually care. Um, and it, it just looked bad didn't that certainly kind of cemented I think the role of him as a career politician who doesn't genuinely care about anything other than his own um his own career and I think at the at the end of act two of the election we should leave the listeners in suspense for a moment and just talk about this perception that's going around that this has been a a particularly rubbish election campaign in Germany that there's, there's just been too many ad hominem attacks. The parties have spent too much time talking about the shortcomings of each other's leaders and not enough time talking about the actual substantial differences over policy um, and this idea that this is somehow deterring the voters. What, what do you think about that? I would agree to an extent because, like we, as we were saying earlier, there hasn't really been a debate around the things that really matter to people and I think that's just putting people off politicians are talking about 
you know, giving each other nicknames and, and, you know, there's been a lot of mud flinging going on. And then apart from that, it's just been a bit dreary. There's been, you know, tax reforms. The CDU, CSU haven't really come up with anything better than don't vote for the for the centre left because they'll make a pact with the far left and then communism is going to come back. So they've dragged this sort of 1950s rhetoric back out. You know, either it's us or it's the commies, and that's just not gonna not gonna wash, is it? When the 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 linker or the left that I was talking about earlier, the far left party are currently polling at something like 7%. You know, th- this is not like the 1920s or the 1950s where you can get away with the threat of communism as a viable election strategy. So I think people have just been put or put off a little bit by the lack of substance and also by the lack of personality, I feel. I, I agree with everything you've said. And yet I also think that there's a slight element of pearl clutching to some of these um, commentators in Germany who are saying, oh, we've, we've never had such a, a personally nasty campaign before. And you think, you know, the current union strategy of saying that Olaf Scholz is a Trojan horse for the far left, so-called Red Sox strategy, got its name from um, the union's previous campaign in 1994, where they, they kind of got away with it and making out that if you let the SPD in, you'd let in much more radical far left former communist elements. But even further back than that, you alluded to the 1950s. You think of some of the dirt that Conrad Adenauer, the sort of great CDU post-war chancellor, used to chuck at Willy Willy Brandt, his um, rival from the SPD, you know, saying sort of, where were you during the Second World War? And you could have turned around and said to Adenauer, you know, half of your cabinet was in the SS, mate. What what, what are you saying? (laughs) I mean, it was really, it always has been quite a dirty business. Yeah, no, that's right. And I think it played into the sort of sense that, you know, the, the German communists had come back from Russia and founded East Germany. And so Adenauer was sort of trying to imply, even though, um, of course, Willy Brandt had, had spent his time in Scandinavia, not in Russia. But the fact that he'd taken on a different name, so Willy Brandt in itself is, a, um, is not his name. And therefore, you know, it, it seemed a bit dodgy to people at the time. And that's what Adenauer was playing into. But because of the relatively short time span that had passed between the war and then that worked psychologically for a lot of um, more conservative voters. They were genuinely frightened still of the communists. They'd also grown up many many of these people under the Nazis and, and that triggered something, I think, in their psyche that you just can't repeat. Right, I think we should take a short break here. Bis gleich. Welcome back to Tommy's and Jerry's, the only podcast covering the full span of subjects from the Gorbals to the Goebbels. <laughs> While we're here, in future episodes, we'd very much like to talk about your questions, comments, or even corrections. So do please get in touch over Twitter. Our handle is at Tommy's Jerry's. We'll post the subject of each week's episode a few days in advance so that you can get your suggestions in early. Right, so back to the imminent and highly volatile Bundestag election in Germany and Act 3. Uh, so until a few weeks ago, we'd already seen two different parties take the lead. Yeah, and then a third party came seemingly out of nowhere and burst into first place. So the SPD is now between, at the time we're recording, this is now between 2 and 6% ahead in the polls. What do you, what do you think is going on there, Katja? Um, I think... Olaf Scholz, their chancellor candidate, uh, is a lot more popular than the party, which may sound a little bit bizarre given that Germans vote for the political party and not for the chancellor directly. 
But all the polls seem to indicate that. And he's at the moment selling himself as a safe pair of hands he may be a bit boring and he may be a bit dull but at least he's not going to mess things up he's not going to stand around when a flood happens and chuckle like a naughty schoolboy. neither is he going to uh say things in speeches or in his cv that aren't true he's just the reliable good old olaf who will sort things out and continue in a safe manner and so i think germans are beginning to root for what they think is the devil they know like a sort of you know, Merkel continuity option, um, even though they may not, you know, he's not kind of stardust material, but I think that's exactly why a significant minority are beginning to shift in that direction. And um, a couple of weeks ago, Schultz appeared on the front cover of the Süddeutsche Zeitung magazine, making um, a rhombus shape with his, the tips of his thumbs and the tips of his index fingers, which is Merkel's um, classic, the Merkel halter, the, um, the the Merkel diamond, you know, the gesture of reassurance, you're safe with me. He's quoted Merkel's um, classic strap lines, you kennen mich, you, you know who I am. I mean, how he's obviously trying to cast himself as the sort of natural political heir of Merkel. How well do you think he's doing that? And also, do you think there are really any substantial differences between them? Well, it is quite a funny one, given that he's from a different political party and their classic rival. So Angela Merkel leads or used to lead uh, the CDU and he's he's the chancellor candidate for the SPD. They ought to be rivals. It's a bit like having a Labour candidate running for office saying that he's going to be um, a Boris Johnson reincarnate. You know, it's just bizarre. Uh, and But it seems to work, I think. Um, because he is appealing to this instinct within Germans, which is, I think, rooted in in our history, that democracy needs to be saved. Uh, people would rather have, a, you know, mediocrity, but safe mediocrity than, than take a risk. And I think for them to actually take a risk, it would take a bit of um, a character to pull that off. I think Marco Söder could have done that simply because he, he appears confident and like somebody who will take charge when he when he needs to like he he did some fairly extreme stuff during the covid pandemic when he introduced some of the harshest covid measures in germany in his state in bavaria um but people i think would have been willing to take more of a change risk with him because of this kind of um air of reassurance that he has about him he just seems like a guy who will do what he thinks is right whether it actually is or not and I think people trust that whilst I think Scholz is kind of doing the opposite he's saying you know things may not be brilliant at the moment but at least they're not terribly wrong either let's just go with that yeah I do, I do think that there are, there are two differences I draw attention to between Scholz and Merkel the first one's really obvious that he's a social democrat whereas Merkel was a, a Christian Democrat who acted a lot like a, a social Democrat. But I think Schultz is generally a little bit less what you might call neoliberal than Merkel. He's kind of tried to shape his um, election campaign this time around, um, around the core idea of, of you know, strengthening Labour um, against capital, around the idea of respect. He wants to introduce um, or bring back, I should say, Germany's wealth tax, um, and to uh, raise the minimum wage from something like nine euros sixty an hour to to twelve euros an hour. So I do I do think economically he's a little bit more left wing, a little bit more open maybe to um, breaking the, the the sort of cherished black zero 
convention that the German government lives within its means and doesn't borrow more than a tiny amount of its GDP each year. The other big difference I would say is that I think Schultz is a slightly better media performer than Merkel. Um, and this is an excuse to trot out um, one of my favourite German words, which is um, schlumpf, meaning um, <laughs> smurf. And um, back in March, there was just one of these interminable, vicious coronavirus policy summits and uh, where everyone was just briefing against each other, left, right and centre, and pouring poison into the ears of the press. And Zerda, the, the Bavarian prime minister, accused Scholz of um, schlumpfigus dahergrinsen, which is hard to translate, but it means something like a smurfish condescending grin, I think. And then Scholz was asked about this on a TV talk show, and he said... He absolutely loved the comparison because, and I quote, the Smurfs are small, the Smurfs are crafty, and they always win. And I thought it was just classic Schultz because this, um, this could have become, you know, one of these images that sticks. And he's just, you know, um, de, uh, defanged it. He's taken the sting out of it. He's made a little joke. He's dismissed it. He's polished it and he's moved on. And I think when you talk about the other candidates having gone into a bit of a doom spiral where it seems like they can't do anything right. Although it's still stuck a little bit, hasn't it, that Smurf thing? Because it's now the the German spitting image character of... Oh, uh, really? I haven't seen that yet. Yeah, yeah, of Olaf Scholz is now a Smurf. (laughs) So it's just this like blue, you know, like like the spitting image does, like this really exaggerated caricature-ish uh, representation of Scholz as a Smurf, which uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not. I mean, obviously you dealt with that, right? And you can still continue that, but it, it's it's stuck in a way. That perhaps yeah, you wouldn't, but I, wouldn't have I liked. think that underlines the point, right? That mm. um, Scholz can't do anything wrong, and even like being seen as a Smurf, it doesn't hurt him. He's 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 got that. He's picked up that kind of Teflon quality of, of sort of mm. irresistible seeming upwards momentum. Um, again, like your mum said about Baerbock, like you, you probably couldn't put your finger on it other than the fact that he's quite murkily and he's dealt with everything that's been thrown at him fairly competently and calmly. Um, do you think there's still time for Schultz to blow it? Because has Laschet got away back into the contest? Um, possibly. I mean, it, it depends entirely, I think, on what the other candidates do because Schultz will carry on being Schultz. He's been He's done nothing else since he hasn't gone out of his way to you know draw attention to himself even and I think he'll just sit back and, and watch the the you know mud flinging contest continue and, and he benefits from any scandal and from anything that the other two do and in that respect I think it depends a bit on what the other two will do but it's hard to see them coming back they've only gone one way haven't they in their in the popularity of their own uh, personalities as well as their parties so it's it's hard to see I mean do you think if if it ends up staying as it is and Schultz ends up leading the largest political party and therefore gets a crack at forming a working coalition. So in Germany, after the election, coalitions usually are formed uh, of various political parties, usually two, um, at state level. So at at the sort of 16 German states at their level, you sometimes or quite often actually get um, three-way coalitions, but it would be a bit of an experiment if they'd had to do that. So what uh, the CDU, CSU are currently using as their election strategy is to say, well, as as you said earlier, Olaf Scholz is is so much more left-leaning than Merkel. He's probably willing to work with Die Linke with the left wing party. Do you think that's a possibility that they go with a uh, with maybe with the Greens and and uh, the the left? Yeah, I, I just think German elections must seem so so long winded to anyone who's used to the British electoral system, where you know Big Ben bongs 
and then you get the exit poll indicating a Tory landslide and that's it. Whereas in Germany, it's entirely possible to, to lose an election, to, to, to not win the election and, and still to become chancellor. And that has happened several times in history. So we shouldn't write off Laschet, even if um, the, the CDU, CSU doesn't come first and Scholz and the SPD do. Um, as you say, I think um, a three-party coalition is on the cards. If it's Scholz in the driving seat, there are two options. Um, both involve the Greens as the second wheel. The third wheel could be um, the far left Die Linke or the uh, sort of economically liberal, libertarian, free Democrats. I think uh, Die Linke is pretty unlikely, um, partly because their foreign policy views and their particularly their commitment to pulling Germany out of NATO would be unpalatable to the more mainstream centre-left parties, but also just because um, D-Link is a mess. They, their MPs have such an undisciplined voting record that if you're counting on them for your majority, you would be wobbling every time that there's a major vote on fiscal policy. Yeah, absolutely. They have got everyone, everyone in there, haven't they, from hardcore Euro-communists to fairly left-wing social democrats they are a very very broad church to the point where they can't really agree on a lot of actual policy yeah and i i say this as somebody who who admires um a lot of d-linkers mps and thinks they do a lot of good parliamentary work but the, the party doesn't really have that that sense of cohesion and of, of a collective identity that you would want if you were depending on their votes to, to pass critical legislation. So I, I would personally see this so-called traffic-like coalition named after the, the colours of the, the, the red SPD, the Greens, obviously, and then the yellow Free Democrats as the more likely scenario. But even then, that's not easy because you've got um, parties that have huge disagreements on how to decarbonise, um, how much money the government should be able to borrow, what the tax burden on businesses should be. And you can see bits of common ground like social policy. But I mean, do you how, how, how realistic do you think a, a traffic-like coalition might be? It would be tricky, I think, very tricky, because I don't really see what's in it for the liberal, um, free liberals, because to them, and they've made this mistake countless of times since 1949, where they've joined a coalition and then had to compromise or were put in a position where they had to compromise their free flow capitalism ideas or um, things like freedom of speech, which is the other great... Um, theme and you know then they introduced legislation on uh, extending powers to domestic um, intelligence services and things like that and they had to sign up on it and then they end up losing their own voters massively and I don't really see what's in it for them when they are a party about non-intervention about uh, you know libertarian ideas going together with two parties that are advocating exactly the opposite and um, perhaps we should draw um, it to a close by just having a quick discussion since we're an Anglo-German uh, podcast uh, by looking at how this outcome might actually affect uh, Britain. Oliver, how do you see a post-Merkel government acting or uh, working together with, with Britain? Well, the, the kind of conventional wisdom is that it wouldn't... It doesn't really matter at all who wins the German election for Britain because Britain tends only really to loom in the German political consciousness as a, a sort of precautionary tale that you tell children um, <laughs> about, about how things could go wrong because of the way that it handled um, the first wave of COVID-19 or, or because of Brexit. But I take the view that, that there are a few nuances that might end up making a difference. Um, we've seen since the end of the Brexit transition period that um, 
Germany and Britain have begun to form a bilateral um, or a more concrete bilateral relationship. They've got a sort of joint, slightly wishy-washy foreign policy declaration signed earlier in the summer. We've had Merkel visiting London to try and kind of patch up relations. I mean, you could say that's largely political theatre, but behind the scenes of that theatre, the CDU-CSU has definitely been making noises that sound like they might be quite promising for the bilateral relationship, especially this idea that Germany should take on a bigger um, security role um, in the world. And there are a lot of people in the party who think that should be done through the E3, which is Germany, Britain and France. And I think because of Britain's outsized um, role in defence and security and intelligence, that would inevitably bring Britain more onto Germany's radar if, if the CDU-CSU ended up being dominant in the next government. Uh, what do you think about a Schultz government in Britain? It'd be an interesting one because that would really be the proof in the pudding, wouldn't it, if he is a Merkel follow act? Um, because I think, as you say, that's where Merkel has been pushing things. And the fact that she came over to Britain again as her last visit, knowing full well that she was going to leave soon because she wanted to make sure that that's all set up um, and pushed in the right direction. Um, I'm Yeah, it's, it's hard to tell because there's foreign policy has been such a you know, almost like background noise, basically, in, in the election, in, in the sense that it was always there and people are making vague noises about more commitment or less commitment or more principled politics, as this, the Greens like to say, um, you know, that that's where they are going. But again, there's no concrete policy about what exactly they would do and what that would look like. Um, yeah, so it's hard to tell, really, I think, where, where this is going if, if Schultz becomes the, the leader. And one last question before we wrap up. It feels like we're only days away from the first New Statesman article saying what Labour can learn from, from the SPD coming first in the polls. Do you think that this election actually holds any meaningful lessons for the strategists from Britain's, strategists from Britain's political parties? Well, I think the lesson that people perhaps should learn from it, whether they will or not, I'm, I'm not convinced, is that it it's it would be so much easier if people just sat down somewhere in a pub at a bus stop um somewhere in a public place and just spoke to people what's important to them and, and what they actually want um had you know even just down to to picking the right candidates here in this case you know had they gone with Zuda and Harpik you would have probably ended up with a a combination of of greens and christian democrats with a fairly comfortable majority um but both parties chose to value their own party politics and their own values over those of the voters thinking they, you know, they knew best and, and they know how to do things. And that goes for messaging as well as content, I think. So if anything, that should be the thing. But as you say, people are probably going to treat it as a, a return to center left politics when really this isn't what it's about, I don't think. Uh, well, there's obviously plenty more to discuss on the subject, but I'm sure we'll come back to that after the election. But for now, my watch is telling me that it's ist so weit. That's your lot for this week. A reminder that you can follow us on Twitter at Tommy's Jerry's. Please do send us your questions and also your observations on anything we've said today. Bis dahin and goodbye from Sussex. And tschüss from Berlin. Goodbye. <laughs>